You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. So E3 is cancelled for 2023. We know that already. It's been announced a couple of weeks ago. What were your thoughts, Dan, when you heard that E3 would not take place this year? Uh, it felt like a long time coming. I think I literally thought E3 is dead, long live E3. Yeah. Because I can't imagine... I can't imagine this wasn't a discussion uh, for a short time before it happened. I think whoever's in charge of E3 was probably thinking about this since 2020. At least it seemed like when major publishers and developers started dropping like flies, yeah. withdrawing from the conference, uh, that it would probably not take place. Yet, I still, even though I think that E3 is kind of redundant in those times. It's a little bit like a dinosaur that still just marches on and exists and nobody really knows the reason for why. But still, <laughs> when it went away, I just couldn't help but feel overcome by a certain sadness. You know, we, we talked uh, recently about how video games are uh, a fast-moving and sometimes disposable medium. And I think that the uh, periphera around video games is very similar where I think what I felt when I heard that E3 was dead was the same thing I felt when Nintendo Power Magazine stopped printing or when I stopped getting a, a, a subscription to Game Informer Magazine, the, you know, the trade paper that we have here in the States from GameStop. So I think it's just one of those things where it's like, all right, well, there's the tombstone of that, that aspect of video gaming that we no longer use. Ah. Uh... It's a painful memory, though, I must say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much love I have lost for E3. I think that's yeah. where we both land on it. <laughs> mm, yeah, I feel very ambiguous about it as well. We're going to talk mm. about this and we're going to retrace the story of E3 because, of course, you know, the cancellation has already happened. Op opinions have been exchanged. Uh, but we want to just start at the beginning at the inception of E3 and tell the story of the trade show as such from beginning to its, well, preliminary end. We don't know whether it's actually the conclusion or not. We'll speculate a little bit about the potential future of E3 at the end of this episode. But if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, because this always requires a little bit of time and looking into this and putting together the script, then we would much appreciate that. You can do so by joining Studying Pixels Plus. This is where you get all of our episodes entirely ad-free, a lovely sticker that features a cute mascot pixel coon, and monthly plus episodes. Some of these episodes go in-depth into video game culture. Others actually help you study and research. If you want to do that and you're curious, then go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. 
Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So we want to tell the story of E3. We, of course, have to start at the beginning. And maybe we have to elaborate a little bit on the function of trade shows as such. Because E3 really was a trade show. And trade shows have always had a significant importance, pretty much for any industry, you could say. Because what they would really be about as trade shows is not so much uh, what we know now when we think of E3 or what we might remember, the big showtime moments, the big so-called press conferences that were like just showcases with Aaron Paul driving a car on stage (laughs) or something like that. But it's really about connecting amongst industry insiders and video game publishers and developers finding retailers to sell their stuff. Yeah, it's not like the Oscars for film, because I think that's that's really what the Game Awards is becoming now, is uh, another industry event, granted, but specifically to um, recognize the success of different video games. E3 was much more like a General Electric showroom, <laughs> where it was hey, look at our new uh, our new dishwasher. Or, hey, we have a new washing machine. That was what E3 was, but for video game consoles. Yeah, and you would maybe, if you had a, a store or a, a big chain store, let's say you might, for example, be called GameStop or something along those lines, uh, then you would just uh, go there, you would make appointments with um, industry professionals, with publishers and so on, and you would negotiate and you would see what kind of stock you will purchase so that you can sell it on to customers. So it's really like a very industry insider focused event where also, for example, developers and artists and people who want to break into the industry would go to try and find a job. I've uh, seen this happening a lot at Gamescom here in Germany, mm. where people would basically just say, I want to be, I don't know, I want to work in graphic in a graphic design department at a video game company. So I make a portfolio and I print out my CV and I bring it along, including my business card and maybe a USB stick with further information. And then I go from booth to booth and I make appointments wherever I can. And I try to basically apply there and present myself to the company as someone who's interested in working there. Kind of like a job fair. (laughs) Come on down and see if you can schmooze a little bit and figure out, all right, Konami seems fine. I think I'll go for them. Exactly. And you try your best and get in. And of course, there's also then the aspect of journalists who would go to trade shows and who would then report on everything that is happening there and basically tell the public about it. Because normally a trade show is something where uh, the public would be largely excluded from it. We're talking about generally here about trade shows, right? Although I think I'm pretty sure E3 started that way, right? Because I don't think it was open to the public straight away. It was very much a an industry kind of trade show 
where, as you're saying, it was just to sell product. Yeah, it it had its ups and downs when it comes mm. to um, attendance numbers and when it comes to its regulations on how much of the public they would let in. But even before that, let's go back to the early 90s, before the time that E3 actually existed. Because you were actually not that far off when you said uh, it's a little bit similar to how people would show their new fridge or their you know, home utensils or appliances. Um, because the video game industry for a long time did not have its own trade show, like a place where the entire video game industry internationally would come together. Instead, they were part of the consumer electronics show called CES. For short, we're going to use that abbreviation subsequently. Uh, and that CES, it had a long-standing tradition. It was initially held in 1967, and it was really all about these kinds of home appliances, electronics, phones, televisions, hi-fi systems, that sort of stuff. It's funny to think about back in 67, because in the States, you would have still had traveling salesmen <laughs> at that yeah. point. And you got to figure... Some enterprising individual who formed the CES said, you know, I'm tired of calling up all these individual guys. Why don't we just, why don't we make them come to us in Vegas? We'll pay for their rooms. We'll make them gamble. We'll make them drink and we'll show them all of our dishwashers. Yes. <laughs> this will be perfect. And here you can see the fantastic new dishwasher, the D5000, <laughs> like this kind of thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what the, what the video game industry would be a part of. It was actually held at the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is, I think, where later on most of E3s already took place as well. Mm. Um, and so the video game industry would be a part of the CES showcase. And they were not particularly happy with that because over time, the video game industry was growing bigger and bigger. They had a greater influence, greater capital, and thus also more, let's say, economic force behind them. And they didn't like how the C how they were presented at the CES. I found a, an interesting quote by Tom Kalinske, the CEO of Sega America, mm. who said in an interview with Christopher Dring the following, quote, The CES organizers used to put the video game industry way, way in the back. In 1991, they put us in a tent and you had to walk past all the porn vendors to find us. That particular year, it was pouring rain and the rain leaked right over our new Genesis system. <laughs> I was just furious with the way CES treated the video game industry. And I felt we were a more important industry than they were giving us credit for. End quote. I, I absolutely understand where he's coming from. I agree with his sentiment, but it is so funny to me that, of course, it would be the... <laughs> Genesis <laughs> just getting rained on behind a bunch of porn vendors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then just like, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the Genesis was then quite big in the 90s. And yeah. then people would just be walking around and be like, what's that trash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> in this very part in the back, like a small tent where like the rain's yeah. piling up on the roof and like denting in the tent. You know? <laughs> just moving past a bunch of porn stars and sleazy videos. Like, what yeah. is this? Why am I, why am I back here? <laughs> so... Because of the way that the video game industry was presented at the CES, they started to gradually pull out. More and mm. more uh, developers and publishers said, no, we don't want to do this anymore. Instead, we want to do our own thing. 
And that was really the initial spark for E3, because what they formed was the Digital Software Association in 1994. So this is three years after it rained on the Genesis. And <laughs> <laughs> the Digital Software Association is actually not so unfamiliar to us. We addressed it before in the context of discussing the ESRB, the Entertainment Software Rating Board, because it was not just the fact that the video game industry said, okay, we want to come together somewhere annually, but they had another driving factor, and that was the um, soaring debate about violence in video games at the time and the concerns of parents, the lack in regulation. So seeing how um, there would be a spark in a political debate about potentially censoring video games and giving them regulations by the government, they said, oh, wait, 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 we've got our, we found our, we have our industry organization and we will implement our own labeling system so that you don't have to think about regulating us on a governmental level. That was really what happened after the first Mortal Kombat game came mm -hmm. out and parents were like, oh, geez, this is, this is not okay for children. 1994 was a really important year for video games. And uh, it seems like it's funny to think about something like E3 as being almost inevitable at a certain point, because of course video games are different from home appliances. But I think taking, taking a look back, it was a pivotal move back then to legitimize the industry in a lot of ways, because every industry on the planet has a trade show, an award show, something that kind of distinguishes them as being legitimate, even down to you know, things that you wouldn't even expect, like fishing and game, uh, like license licensures, <laughs> they have trade shows, right? So little things like this are all over the place. So it was really important that they did this at this time. Yeah, it really indicates a shifting focus and a, mm. like a shifting perception of video games and their societal status. Because beforehand, of course, there would be various ways in which video games would be viewed um, as home electronics, basically as, as appliances, um, but also, or let's say entertainment electronics in a broader sense, mm. um, but also as toys, for example. And it took quite a while for video games to come into this role of saying, like, we are actually our own thing. We don't belong mm. with a dishwasher or a TV exhibition or even just, like, you know, uh, toys are us. For example, action yeah. figures, for example, action figures and plushy toys. Of course, these all things are, they are connect, connected in some form. Video games are technological apparatus that does not work all that differently from, for example, a laptop or something. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, they are toys that we play with, uh, much like people would maybe play with a, a deck of cards or something. But it was really in the mid-90s that video games came to be recognized as, okay, so these are video games. That's its own thing. And the the C uh, the um, the Digital Software Association that I spoke of that was um, founded in 1994, they changed their name later on. But I'm just going to spoil it here, so for, for the clarity of communication, later <laughs> they renamed themselves into the Electronic Software Association, the ESA. That's what mm. we the kind of abbreviation that we use today. So when you think of the um, Digital Software Association, just think. ESA. That's what later would become the ESA that organized E3. Now, before that happened, though, they were already starting to plan their very first E3 uh, trade show. But uh, they started, they tried to negotiate first with CES to see whether they could improve the conditions of the video game industry at the trade show. But the negotiations failed 
I didn't I wasn't able to find any information as to why they failed, but I could imagine that there was still a lot of sentiment of like no, 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 we've got, you know, we've got, like, the big fish to fry here, we've got, like, the yeah. big electronics for grown-ups and stuff like that, and um, video games are more like a, uh, like a side show, basically. I mean, I, th I think that, yeah, that's got to be it, right? Because if you're, granted, video game systems are expensive, but if you're comparing them to home appliances like, you know, Kenmore Electronics or, you know, generators or, you know, bigger things that the the average homeowner might be able to purchase you're talking orders of magnitude of price a lot of the time so my thought would be the higher ups at ces most likely said well whatever interest we're getting from vendors is so niche for you you're lucky you're here at all that would be my guess yeah it's not worth our time to say we we put you in a more prominent place that's or also even not <laughs> or even just a, a room with walls and a ceiling yeah. <laughs> instead of a tent. <laughs> well, but they were very wrong, actually, because the second chapter in the story of E3, um, I titled it Rapid Growth. <laughs> <laughs> because indeed, they started their own organization in 1994, and the first E3 started in 1995, so just one year later. This was really a very fast organization. I assume, as it so often happens, um, fueled by a little bit of frustration. I yeah. At least that's the sense that I get from this story, that there was this kind of stick-it-to-the-man mentality a little bit at the little beginning. Yeah, yeah, at the beginning of E3, where it was just like, well, we'll show them that we're an industry <laughs> that needs to be recognized. And so they started the E3, short for Electronic Entertainment Expo. <laughs> and they, I mean, they kind of did show them, because yeah. it was a, a pretty successful first year with a few notable moments but this is something that you had you had found out so it had over 40,000 attendees in 1995 yeah that's really surprising to me i know it's you know later we're going to be talking in the millions of people who would go to e3 but thinking of uh, there are so many expos and there are so many trade shows and the idea that 40,000 in your first go around is is the number that you pull is really impressive and almost shocking to me. Yeah. Also, you have to consider, I think um, we're not going to talk about millions going to E3 because E3 was always relatively small in scale in comparison to other uh, trade shows. So mm. when, they, when they kicked it off with uh, 40,000, it was a huge surprise for everyone involved. And it was actually, I think... I'm not sure. I think their all-time high in attendance numbers, I think that was like around 70,000. So they were... Oh, I was way off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The E3 was never that big. <laughs> although I'm thinking of... I mean, we'll get to this. I'm thinking of, I guess, the broadcast, the reach of E3. You the know, reach. That's, that's going to many, many people. But even so, I mean, I'm just thinking of expos and conventions that I've been to. The idea of 40,000 people going in and out during the time of the event is pretty incredible. Especially when before you were just in a rainy tent in the back yeah. of an, a consumer electronics show and then suddenly 40,000 people turn up. It seems that there was a lot of interest in E3 and they did a lot of things right in giving this new, giving birth to a new place and time where they would basically say, this is the get-together, the annual get-together of the video game industry at large. 
there's little moments too that I think it was it, E3 hit the ground running with what it would eventually become because I think E3 is famous for a lot of things, good, bad, or indifferent. And one of them in my mind is kind of like, there's the event at E3. It's either planned or it isn't, but there's something that happens every year yeah. that kind of becomes the staple. And 1995 kicked it off really, I mean, incredibly. Like it was, a, it, looking back on it, it's a historical moment for the trajectory of video games because I th I think that there's people who would say, myself included, that the success of the PlayStation may have been in part due to a presentation given between representatives of Sega, who were promoting the Saturn, and representatives of Sony, who were promoting the PlayStation 1. And all it took was the representatives of Sega came out and they said that the Sega Saturn, here's all the incredible things. It's, you know, you can play Shenmue, whatever. They had all of these <laughs> incredible... Uh, uh, breakdowns of what the system was capable of. And then they said it's going to be $399. And in 1995, I think you could still buy a home for $399. <laughs> and so then a Sony representative came out and gave the same spiel, but they were very, very deliberate in saying, and ours is $299. And so this pricing thing would later come back to haunt Sony, but their first foray into the E3 world was basically saying our system's just as good and it's way cheaper. And I think that kind of set the precedent for a lot of E3 events, but also the trajectory of Sony in the gaming world. Wasn't there even a show where, I don't know who it was, whether it was from Sony or from a different publisher, where someone just came up to the podium and just unfolded a sheet of paper and just said, $2.99, and then That's left. it. Yeah, yeah. It was, that was the one? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Because... Because, of course you would. That's a brilliant business move to hear all of this stuff about the Sega Saturn. And then, obviously, history is on our side. We can look back and say, yeah, the Saturn, maybe it has a couple of hits, but it's it's not the PlayStation. And I think that it a lot of it came down to that one moment of unfolding the piece of paper and just saying, yeah, ours is cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, that's really such a boss move. And the, the yeah. thing is, it really does set precedent for a lot of things that happened later at E3 because it shows this... Um, it's a trade show, of course, where the industry comes together, where contacts are made, but it also had this kind of competitive attitude straight from the get-go of saying Definitely. everyone presents their stuff and then it's all about who basically delivers most, who makes the most promises, who's most enticing and who's most affordable. And then you would have sort of like someone who won E3, someone who really dominated the press reports of that week. Yes, there's always the discussion of who won E3, always. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I must say at the time I didn't really follow E3 because I was just too young and I mm. probably, I don't know whether I spoke English at the time sufficiently to <laughs> would have even been able to follow it. It was definitely not something that was on my mind. So I don't really have any particular memories from the E3 that took place in the 90s. But I have found out that the first E3 was such a success that they immediately tried to expand. They mm. planned to do further E3 events, like under a label, like E3 and then a, a different city. They would, for example, they tried to do E3 Tokyo in 1996. And, and how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the reception was pretty poor, apparently. Yeah, okay. It was also yeah. the case that Sony was one of the major players in the Japanese domain that supported this, and they pulled out um, shortly that before is, the event took place. That is so funny to me. You're in Tokyo. 
And you're like, nah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not, not really our thing, you know? No, no. Well, I know we're... Uh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> can't, do, can't do anything about it. Can't be helped, yeah. <laughs> well, they, they then stopped to uh, try and branch off. For example, they also had something like E3 Canada planned, which uh, they never realized because it was just... Uh, the, they noticed that the attendance numbers would dwindle when they do these events in other countries and in other cities. Mm. And so they quickly gave up on that concept. I feel like that's that's something that at the right time could have been successful because so many studios are outsourced to Canada. Mm. So there's a huge gaming, uh, develop, like a development presence in Montreal and Quebec, but I it's think... It's awesome. It's a little bit difficult to discern as to mm. why E3 um, struggled to succeed in different locations. Um, for example, in 1997 and 98, so the following two years, they had to move to a different location. They couldn't do it in Las Vegas. They took place in Georgia. And apparently the attendance numbers there were much lower than at the very first E3. One of the reasons that I found that might be um, influencing this is that apparently there's a lot of, uh, like there's a huge chunk of the video game industry uh, that has their main offices around LA. And Definitely. yeah, so they had to basically, when they did it in Georgia or when they would do something in Canada, they would have to bring lots of, fly lots of people out, bring lots of equipment there. And then many publishers, especially mid range publishers and developers, would just say, sorry, we can't afford uh, basically putting off on such a gigantic showcase for a week. That's why we can't attend. I think that's that's the real kicker because. LA is the, it's the hub for all kinds of entertainment and everybody has their base there. All of the, uh, uh, so many of the trade shows and award shows happen there that I think it's just like a foregone conclusion that if you're in the entertainment industry, you're going to have your event either in LA or Vegas because Vegas has its fair share too, just because of the history of conventions and drawing people in with, <laughs> with gambling and illicit activity. So I'm not surprised that it, it failed in, or didn't do as well in Georgia. I mean, even now with things like packs, packs are very, they're very spread out. They deliberately go other, other places than LA so that they can bring video games to other parts of the country. But, uh, they cancel them all the time. I mean, the one that was in Texas didn't do as well. So they had to cancel that. So it just depends on who's going to be able to go out. Yeah. Who's going to be able to go out, whether they have sufficiently strong players that support the show because of, I, I can imagine this. It's like if you're if you're a video game developer or publisher and you're thinking about attending this thing, then it's all about um, do you have anything to show? And mm. uh, usually, in order to have something to show, you need to make something to show. So you need <laughs> to plan this way in advance and work towards it. And you have a clear deadline as to when it needs to be submitted so that it can be shown at an event like E3 or PAX. And then you have to get all of the staff members and equipment out. You have to pay people. You have to finance their accommodations because it's a business trip and these kinds of things. Not every company can afford doing that. It's funny you should mention that because I, I put in as another notable moment that also set the precedent for future events at E3. Mm. Uh, the Halo 2 trailer reveal was in 2003 was so massive and it was so different from what had happened in the previous years at E3 that it really uh 
it broke the mold and it kind of said, okay, if you want to succeed, you have to make a trailer that's going to blow people's minds. And I think what you just said is another reason E3 kind of fell off in the later years, which was not everyone had something, and but they had the time at E3, so they might put a teaser together that never coalesced later down the road. <laughs> so Halo 2's massive success kind of set the the uh, roadmap for people to come in with a huge trailer that was going to get everybody talking. And that, that was really fun for E3, but it didn't always pan out. Yeah. Wasn't that also the time frame, like the early 2000s where resistance to um, the resistance mm. to incident took place? Yes. Would you like to elaborate on the resistance to incident? The resistance <laughs> to incident is actually, that's actually one of the early E3 stories. I remember, mm. I personally remember because, um, so Resistance 2 was hyped as like a new standard in, you know, technology, like a really amazing first-person shooter. And I think it was Sony who showed the uh, Resistance 2 trailer. And um, it was very cinematic. It was um, impressive. And uh, they kind of made it seem like as if it is all gameplay. Mm. However, the trailer was merely a fabrication, a pre-rendered fabrication that would simulate or kind of give you an idea of how this game might potentially look uh, that obviously didn't work out. And ultimately the game came out much to the disappointment of players being like, but this is, this is nothing like what you showed at E3. Yeah. Which again is, is crazy because the Halo 2 reveal was just in engine, you know, showing things that happen in the game. So obviously if you're a, if you're a person going to this trade show looking to buy wares for your store or if you're somebody who's interested in the video game world and you're watching all these trailers you have no reason to disbelieve that that's what it would look like and then all of a sudden you had a huge reason to disbelieve trailers <laughs> and it was yeah. called resistance too <laughs> exactly that was the time yeah. when these discourses were just forming we're talking about the early 2000s here where mm. um these labels of you know created in engine or it, it created in game or something these things that are indicated in every trailer nowadays um, or does not represent gameplay or something. Yeah. Uh, these inserts, they developed at the time out of necessity because people felt betrayed. And this is something that actually lasted as a through line for many years. For example, I remember that with Watch Dogs, where Ubisoft oh, yeah. announced Watch Dogs and they had this amazing trailer where, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aiden Pierce, the protagonist mm -hmm. of Watch Dogs. I'm surprised I even remember that guy's name. Uh, uh, <laughs> where he walks out of a store and then it's like, you know, the wind is blowing and his coat is like flapping in the wind and it's, it's all so atmospheric. Um, and then it turns out that it was actually just completely fabricated for the sake of presentation there. And they eventually had to dial it back significantly to accommodate the vastness of the open world. The game looked much worse than it looked on stage at E3. So people started to kind of develop a distrust and I would also say even a certain resentment, um, including myself, towards this these big presentations at E3 where people would try to basically sell you things like sell you a magic tonic. Yeah, it was. It was like snake oil salesman. <laughs> yeah, snake oil, yes. And I think uh, that that we're, we're getting a little ahead of our timeline here, but this is important to bring up in the trailer space because I really do think that that exact uh, kind of ill feeling towards E3 contributed to its decline because mm. 
what you would eventually start saying is this was no longer a, a show where you would say, oh, I can't wait to see, I can't wait for this game that's going to come out that I know will come out that I will be excited for. It eventually became, yeah, all the trailers looked interesting, but I'm not holding my breath for any of them being real. And even if they are real, I don't think they're going to play like that. Yes, exactly. Mm. But as you said, we have to take a couple of steps forward in the history of E3 first, because in 2005, E3 um, basically hit their, their, their new attendance record, um, 70,000 people. And this would actually remain, I think, the biggest one. I'm not sure. I think this is the biggest one that ever took place. Pretty impressive. 70,000 people. Yeah, 70,000 people. Uh, it's always interesting, right? E3, it had at this time established itself as the place to be for the video game industry. Mm. It had uh, obtained the power to kind of dictate the annual rhythm of announcements. And yeah. it would just be like uh, everything in the video game industry, a lot of, lot of things in the video game industry would basically march of the pacing of the E3 by being like, we have to... We have to develop a prototype by this point so that we can show it at E3. We have to have a, I don't know, a release date so that we can announce it at E3 and these kinds of things. Um, interestingly enough, uh, because of the attendance numbers, 70,000 attendees is actually in the larger scale of things relatively small. Mm. Um, for example, Gamescom here has around 300,000 people every wow. year. So. Gamescom is huge, but there's also... Gamescom is internationally less important. It's It has gained a little bit of traction, especially since Jeff Keighley always comes to Gamescom and does a showcase there, <laughs> the Gamescom we'll opening him. night live. Yeah. But uh, there is a kind of... Um, there's always been a kind of imbalance between attendees, physical attendees on the one hand, and let's say reach, uh, impact factor on the other. Because while E3 has always been on the scale of international video game trade shows, um, like moderately sized. I think Gamescom is much bigger. Tokyo Game Show is also much bigger, as far as I'm aware. Um, while it's moderately sized, it has a huge reach and huge impact because it's just that all eyes are on E3 for that one week, usually in June, I think. June, yeah. yeah. And for better or worse, because of that reach, it, it was this kind of snake eat its, eating its own tail where... There had to be, because there were successful moments of spectacle, there had to be spectacle every year. Yes. I'm thinking about in 2004 when Miyamoto came out on stage dressed as Link with his, you know, to, yeah. to announce a new Zelda game. Like, that's a big deal to have the, the face of Nintendo come out as one of the characters. So even <laughs> little things like that, that in retrospect seem kind of silly, were huge. And they were really important things that E3 would do. So... The conversation started being, all right, forget the trailers. Like, what else is going to happen? Who's going to be at E3? What's going to be announced? Is Are we going to get a new console? There's rumors of this game, whatever. It became this whole behemoth outside of itself. Yes, definitely. And the interesting thing is, it became that in its international reach. And of course, with, uh, I would say, a particular lens on the, uh, the showcases that took place, mm. big one hour between one and two hour long showcases where publishers would just fire out one announcement after the next but of course this is also a physical event uh, that takes place 
and where people actually go. And yeah, yeah. since it had grown so much, it kind of um, it, it kind of had the expectation that if you go to E3, then um, the industry has to present you with something. They have to set up all sorts of consoles so people can play the new games. It's almost like um, a temporary theme park for all things video games uh, that takes place there. It kind of it kind of turned into uh, at a certain point, it almost became indistinguishable from Comic Con in the states too, because Comic Con back in the day it wasn't a trade show, but it was just like I, I'm not kidding, a bunch of nerds with their comics coming to trade them. That's what it was, and then it it slowly gained traction as this bigger industry event to the point where you have celebrities there they're talking about their new movie it's a big trailer reveal thing so very similar to e3 e3 felt the same way where it stopped being about here's our playstation this is what the price point is and it very quickly became like a circus really at a certain point and that can be a problem it actually turned into a problem and publishers mm. and and developers at least some major publishers and developers complained about this because of course if you have the situation that you've got 70,000 people around, including many people just from the public or bloggers and stuff like that, we're talking about mid-2000s here, then um, it's it got harder for them to basically find their target audience. Mostly mm. they wanted to speak to retailers and focus on selling their stuff, getting it into onto the store shelves they wanted to make deals. They wanted to maybe form new cooperations or consider new acquisitions of other... Uh, a publisher might consider an acquisition with a studio and there might be negotiations going on and things like that. That all kind of went into the background as the event became bigger and bigger. And then in 2007 and 8, they took a radical turn. They basically downsized E3 by force. Uh, <laughs> They can do that, of course, because they are the video video game industry. The E3 is kind of the tr trade show of the video game industry. They can do with it whatever they like. Yeah. And they then called it the E3 Media and Business Summit. Um, deliberate naming. They give it a particular tag. It's no longer E3. It's the E3 Media and Business Summit. To make very clear, if you want to attend, are you media or are you business? And if you're not... No, <laughs> you <Yeah>. cannot. <laughs> you cannot attend. And that's actually, they communicated this very clearly, and they did downsize it. I think in 2008 was the lowest attendance number of any E3, and that was 5,000 people. So that would be a very small trade show focused on insiders and maybe then a couple of journalists who are allowed in. I've got exclusive access. You know what's funny? You mentioned earlier... You, you didn't, you know, remember the 1995, the first E3 with the PlayStation reveal mm. and, the, and the premature death of the Sega Saturn. Um, but I remember this. This was my first, I think, conscious memory of E3, of knowing mm. about it and kind of thinking about what it was, was the announcement that people were no longer, the public was no longer able to attend. It was this, all right, now it's just journalists and it's just uh, people in the business. Because I think that was a, that was a huge deal at the time because if you look at the numbers prior to this decision, I mean, that's a, that's downsizing by quite a lot just yeah. to get you know the appropriate. I say the appropriate people, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> appropriate yeah. to E3 and their organizers into the event. Yeah, to get only the people that you want. 
Uh, mm. It's it's tough, and it's that that was actually also a time that I consciously remember because I do think that I wanted to when I was younger. I wanted to go to E3. It was kind of yeah. like a dream of mine. As for any any young adult who loves video games and always like hears of all of these announcements and watches these showcases, and there are people in the crowd that are cheering, and you think, why can't I be there yeah. as well? And I remember that it was uh, clear fairly early on. Um, no, you can't go there. This is only for if you work in the industry or if you are in the media. Well, you know, later on, I I actually was supposed to be sent to E3 once. Mm, oh, that really? Was many, yeah, yeah, that was many years ago. I don't know ago. this story. Yeah. <laughs> that was by an online magazine where I worked. It eventually <clears throat> fell through because um, they wanted to send, I think, two people or something, but they found that it was just very expensive. Um, and they, <laughs> I mean, I, I already had a passport, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was expecting, I, I don't know what I was expecting, maybe a little more to the story. And then it's just the pragmatic, well, it was very expensive. It's just go. like, you know, Googling, you know, and then, you know, flight scanner oh, and then yeah. like, oh, sheesh. <laughs> yeah. That's more uh, than about we were thinking. that thing we organized with you three. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they did it the following year, though. I think they sent people mm. the following year, but by that time I'd already quit. They saved up the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but uh, E3 became uh, very small and immediately afterwards very big again. Why? Because yeah. they found that once they had downsized it significantly, it came more into uh, this actual trade show function, but they had an internal kind of internal conflict i would say this was already the time in 2009 2008 2009 when it became very clear that e e3 as an event was conflicted it was always kind of torn between being a, a trade show for insiders and being a huge public event and in 2009 the latter opinion uh, was dominant the esa they realized that they want to be open for influencers and bloggers and let's say the wider circle of industry professionals and so they opened it up to the public again they basically changed concept once more and immediately the attending numbers soared again in 2009 it was 41,000 and then skipping 10 years ahead in 2018 it was 69,200 again so basically within these um, eight or nine years here uh, between 2009 and 2018, they steadily increased their attendance numbers and climbed back up. It's funny to think that they they had the same kind of uh, band of attendance, right? Because it started at 40,000, it peaked at 70, and it was always in there when they opened it up to people. So say what you will about E3, I, there, there was and is, I think, a hunger for this kind of event. People yeah. do like the celebration of video games. It just maybe stopped being E3, which yeah. is a nice segue. <laughs> a nice segue into our break, and yes. we'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back talking about the story of E3. We were just talking about the, let's say, formative years in which E3 came into what we now it to be nowadays or what we know that it was <laughs> the last couple yeah. of years so right. between 2009 and 2018 it established itself as the major player in the video game industry again being the trade show that everyone would attend that all the attention would be focused on that would kind of um kind of attract all of the big announcements and reveals i have actually some fond memories of this time for example I can't, <laughs> I always have to chuckle when I think of the time when um, when uh, Microsoft presented their new console. I think that was the, that was the Xbox One, right? It was, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Xbox One, and they were just like, <laughs> they were just like focusing on making it a multimedia device and talking about all the things that you can do by changing the channel with the voice command and, and these kinds of things. And uh-huh. people were just like, oh, okay. And then they were like, yeah. And because of, you know, the copyright protection, it's all like strictly regulated. And also uh, you have to always have the Connect plugged in. <laughs> I think that's what they also announced that year. Connect is plugged in. It's always online. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, yeah. it's going to uh, it's going to tell you that it cannot uh, open the pod bay doors and that you're trapped. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all kinds of nightmare fuel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was really a very interesting year because Sony had their conference afterwards. And <laughs> I remember that when we were discussing it back in the day, we were debating whether Sony had all of it pre-planned or whether they potentially just waited to see what Microsoft would announce and then basically adopt, adapt because they can still change features of their console. And they saw, undoubtedly, they saw the negative response to the Microsoft presentation and that people were kind of like, having this attitude of like, okay, hmm, maybe this is just what the new console generation will be like, and maybe there's no way around it. And then Sony came out and did exactly the opposite of making it a quite open console, cheaper than the Xbox One, 
They had a fun trailer where they basically showed... Uh, Microsoft had a trailer where they showed how you can share a game with a friend. And it's like this intricate <laughs> system where you have to legitimize that you can let a friend yeah. play your game. And an uh, Sony did this video where it's just like, you know, handing the other person the disc. And that was <laughs> it. Uh, that was just amazing. For me, as someone who's a Sony pony, it was one yeah. of these years where it was just like, I just can't believe this is happening. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but... 2013 was also the year when uh, the anime Attack on Titan was huge. And there was just, oh my God, I remember after E3, there were so many GIFs and YouTube videos of like the Microsoft logo on one Titan's face and then the Sony logo on the main Titan's face just just beating the pulp out of the Microsoft logo. Yeah, And it was, I think, the perfect spiritual successor to the moment of bring, unfolding the sheet of paper with the price point in front of Sega because it was, it was just the king of, of reactions to say, yeah, let, let's show how you can share a game on the PS4. You just hand it to your friend. <laughs> <laughs> it was really beautiful, but it was also something that soon um, came into uh, troublesome waters because mm. what we are delineating now, and of course we're relishing in these moments. It's like, it's a little bit like uh, watching a sports game where you would have this major league that takes place in that one week and everyone's kind of basically firing out everything they got and then there's a winner and you're kind of like rooting for someone because you have a PlayStation at home. You want obviously to see that PlayStation exceeds all expectations, whereas you want to see Microsoft to be kind of sneezed at. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> the thing is, uh, that kind of concept, it started to slowly but steadily erode um, since 2013 because Nintendo and Electronic Arts, they gradually removed their presence from E3. They initiated their own events. Um, there was the initiation of the Nintendo Direct and of the EA Play. And uh, I, my guess is that one of the primary reasons for why they did this is just because if you go to E3, you have to compete with the major players who will do everything they can to attract as much attention as possible to their products. And if you can't compete, then you'll basically be drowned out because any article that's published on you will be immediately disappearing in the feed. And so if you have your own event, you can dictate the time a little bit better. You can say, okay, mm. we're not going to announce it right now. We don't have everything prepared, so we'll just wait two weeks. Um, you have full control over what's going to happen at this event and you don't have to basically wrestle for every second of attention with all the other big players. And it's no surprise that Nintendo kind of led the way with that because, you know, it's, I mean, Nintendo is the video game company still to this day, I would, I would make that argument. And at a certain point in 2013, and then they kind of, they took this idea and ran with it in the later years. They said, we don't really need E3. You know, we, we kind of are our own hype machine. <laughs> so we'll do our own work and uh, we don't necessarily need the trade show to help us along with that. Yeah. I think that for, in my memory, the last big year for E3, where I feel like everything was kind of uh, successful in its own right, was 2015. Because I remember 2015, I was in Japan at the time mm. and it was a big, it was a just massive like trailer after trailer after trailer of these insane reveals and you know final fantasy 7 remake halo 5 and the master chief collection for uh microsoft 
And Nintendo had a slew of titles that they were kind of showing off. It wasn't like, it wasn't the Switch reveal, but it was a lot of, you know, titles that people were excited about. I mean, it was Super Mario Maker. That was when that was coming out. There was a Mario Kart game, I believe. So it was like, you know, big, big Nintendo titles. And that was really when I think things were, every everybody was still involved. Things were pretty big and exciting. And that's when I remember it sort of saying, okay, now people are pulling out and it's, uh, all the rats are leaving the ship. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the Final Fantasy VII remake reveal, actually, that was legendary. Um, yes. I remember. Unexpected. I still, yeah, unexpected. It, nobody expected it. Apparently, even the director of the game did not expect it because he just found out by seeing his name on the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the thing was that nobody in the audience expected it either. And uh, I remember distinctly watching that E3 uh, PlayStation showcase and ha it was just uh, such a goosebumps moment when suddenly everyone realizes like wait this could, could this be Final Fantasy 7 and then you have this reaction of no it can't be they won't they wouldn't do this I know it's such a classic they wouldn't touch that and then suddenly it comes on with a low and you see the first character models and people are just like bursting out in tears because yeah. of uh, the strong connection they have to that video game and then there are all these online compilations of people crying and breaking down yeah. watching that trailer it's absolutely impressive. Especially because another moment in E3 history was the the quote-unquote reveal of a Final Fantasy VII remake on the PS3, which was yes. just a tech demo to show the PS3's capabilities. So I think everybody was like, it was the longest con in video game history. No, it's real now. And even the director is surprised that you're seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a legendary moment that people spoke about it for weeks and nobody could believe it and i remember how much we speculated about final fantasy 7 remake what it would be what it would be like and oh wait they turn it into three games are they insane and then yeah uh, it all came together in the end of course um <laughs> but yeah i think you're right that was the time when there was still there were these major peak moments where you could see that it still worked they still had mm. the fire going um and then though i mean Nintendo slowly started to pull out. Sony started to shift perspectives in 2017, so shortly thereafter. Uh, they went in a different direction. They were still at E3. But the thing is that the conventional strategy would be to bring as many exclusive video games as possible from all sorts of different genres to attract all kinds of audiences. Ideally, you would have at least three dozen trailers and every second trailer had the logo like, you know, exclusive or something, or console exclusive before, or like worldwide reveal, something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, Sony in 2017 went into a different direction. They, they focused on a smaller scale presentation. They selected, I think, three titles. It might have been two or three. That was the time when the new, the rebooted God of War um, yes. was announced and it wasn't announced it was presented there um and a couple of other titles and they had like a, a smaller hall they had a an orchestra that would play throughout the entire showcase and they would show a lot more material consistent material of these games where you just see 15 minutes of uncommented uh god of war footage accompanied by a live orchestra and um, i mean people were really in thought i really loved that kind of thing because I always held the position of don't give me these um, like super fast edited trailers. Give me 
show us five minutes something. of consistent gameplay so that I can get a good feeling for what this game actually is. And they did exactly that. And it made me very happy, but it also showed that E3 was like, it was drifting apart. Nintendo dropping out, Sony saying like, oh, we're actually not going to compete in this race anymore. We're going to do a little bit of a different thing. Microsoft really was the only company at that time that really, st- well, Microsoft, Ubisoft as well. Um, yeah. They were, but Microsoft as the only company that also published hardware um, that was saying, here, we're going to do seven, we got 70 announcements for you today. I think, yeah, that was, there was something, uh, I think, I think pathetic would be the right word. And I think that kind of rippled out into E3 more broadly, because as you're saying, Nintendo was pulling out because of obvious reasons. They're Nintendo. They don't need anybody. Uh, Sony was kind of proving that I think where they are now, which is Sony is the beautiful cinematic, uh, game company things, you know, the, the games that they put out, these incredible broad sweeping narratives that have these incredible emotions. I mean, like an, an orchestra playing in real time with imagery of God of war is totally on brand for what Sony is nowadays, I would say. Yeah. And then you have Microsoft. (laughs) And Microsoft is, you know, buying out all these companies. It's desperately trying to say, this is what we have. This is where we're going. They're showing cars on stage for Forza games. I mean, it's all over the place. And I think I would say it, it reeks of desperation in the sense that they don't really have anything to present. They just have kind of the, uh, the hope of things or the, the kind of gesture towards things. And there was something about that around this time in 2017, 2018 that I feel like rubbed off on E3 because it, you know, it's not just the big three, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. It's the other publishers as well who were there. You mentioned Ubisoft and, you know, different companies like that who have their own kind of showcases. But there was just something about two of the big names pulling out or distancing themselves and Microsoft really vying for people's attention where i think people started saying like what's happening with e3 why why am i watching this yeah i think first of all i think it's really important that you point out we're talking about all of these major players but of course there were many more companies publishers and so on that were present at e3 that had held either small showcases or they were just there on the show floor and were not part of these uh, major showcase events that were broadcast internationally Uh, there was also Um, The addition of Devolver Digital, who joined Mm. E3 and who always did their own kind of uh, counter showcase, you could say, where (laughs) they would, you know, poke fun at E3 and they would basically be the voice of people that don't like E3 at E3. At E3. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whereas with Microsoft, I would say, hmm, I mean, I think their strategy was just different. Um, like uh, Nintendo was kind of, you know, diverging, which is, as you said, completely unsurprising. Sony was articulating a new identity for itself of being like, we mm. want to, we're, we are the Sony of God of War, The Last of Us, Horizon, and so on. These are, these are our productions these days. This is what we do. And that's what we focus on. Uh, whereas Microsoft um, still tried to basically stay on the track that they had already established of we, we, we have lots of studios. We then purchase a lot of indie developers and support indie developers by doing so and then present their games. We're basically a, a conglomerate of various different mm. developers. Um, and I think it made sense at the time because the other companies were steering in different directions. 
And so they could potentially just hold their ground, which they do till this day. They are still uh, that very company, including this most recent acquisition of Activision that's still um, a bit under fire, but it looks like it's going to go through. So they're still holding on to to that kind of company identity. And not unsuccessfully so. I mean, they are still, uh, you know, a, a big platform, though arguably, of course, uh, the PlayStation and the Nintendo Switch are much bigger than the uh, Xbox Series X, for example. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's a fair point to make. I, I, I'm ragging on Microsoft a little bit. I just have these, this is maybe the problem of E3. I have these memories of Microsoft's showcases being, mm. oh, uh, I guess lame. <laughs> It's the idea that I would go with. I think, uh, kind of, th there there wasn't there wasn't as much spectacle to the other, uh, as uh, there wasn't as much spectacle to them as there was to the other companies, and I think that kind of middle of the line, more like almost a CES showcase, has kind of put a sour note in my mouth when I think about Microsoft, which is a a weird situation because it's all the result of E3 and previous years kind of priming me for what an announcement should be or what a big company like this should be presenting. And I think that my, my view of it is not so foreign to a lot of people's views on it, which has kind of contributed to E3 not doing so well in the past couple of yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, there were also, <laughs> I've also got terrible memories of other showcases, um, I remember that, for example, the EA showcase, that was always one that I found the most boring because it was just, here's the new FIFA, here's like, we've got this new technology where the ball behaves slightly more physically realistic than the previous games, and here's the new player that's going to be on the cover art, basically, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then lots of racing. Um, and then there were these Square Enix showcases, they... Yeah. didn't exist for very long but they were very peculiar because they were really <laughs> the showcases they were designed like an actual trade show like someone coming on stage being like i have a powerpoint presentation prepared <laughs> 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 i have a lanyard that i'm still wearing yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well very japanese of them i suppose <laughs> yeah you could clearly tell that they were coming there and they were not going to be pompous and do some kind of big thing, primarily also because all of their big stuff had already been shown on the Sony showcase. Yeah. Um, so they were just like, you know, talking a little bit about some some details. And of course, there was Ubisoft legendarily always a Just Dance showcase. Yes, always, always. Yeah. Always a Just Dance showcase. And usually, as you mentioned, uh, a trailer that was not so honest about what it was. Yeah. With <laughs> uh, really poor acting Mm. in you know real gamers playing the game and acting as if they're discovering things for the first time that's what i mm. associate with ubisoft <laughs> well um we indicated now that e3 is kind of it's not in decline because attendance attendance numbers are still rising and it's still mm. receiving a lot of international attention but in 2018 Sony opted out of E3 for the first time ever. Like, they had been there from the very beginning, every single year, sometimes more, sometimes less successfully so. But that was the year where they said, no, we're actually no longer doing this. Uh, they then established their own uh, showcases. I think they had, like, the PlayStation Experience thing, and then they had, like, this 
uh, this uh, uh, what is it state of play um, this of play. Um, this We're showcase this digital showcase um, and of course in 2019 there was an incident that took place that kind of eroded the trust between uh, the press the media which obviously are an important part of every E3 and the organizers of the E3 because in 2019 um, that was a time where um, Gamergate was still ongoing. So it was a time where there was a lot of outrage. Um, professional journalists and outspoken critics um, faced a lot of hate uh, online. And E3 made... Well, I'm, I, I'm not going to frame it normatively. E3, they accidentally leaked a list of 2,000 journalists, including mm. their private data that they used to register. Um, such as home addresses, email addresses, and so on. Um, and many of the journalists that were on this list, they reported then afterwards being subjected to abuse, to uh, hate messages uh, and uh, death threats that happened uh, subsequently. There was also another list of 6,000 E3 attendees that was also leaked. Um, this was all in the context, if you wonder, of how could this happen? Um, it's, I don't think it's quite clear why it ever happened. But these lists, they were basically publicly accessible on the website. And presumably someone who maintained the E3 website accidentally um, made it publicly available. Of course, these lists were immediately taken down after they became aware that this data was publicly available. But it did kind of, uh, it, it, it rippled in the discourse and it indicated a fracture in trust between the video game media on the one hand and the video game industry on the other. Unsurprisingly, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big blunder, especially so recently. I mean, mm. you would think that a, uh, an organization like the ESA and a production like E3 would have more in place. And I think that really did, as you said, eroded the trust between, I mean, it was only, uh, they were catering towards business people and journalists. That was their primary group that they were attracting. Obviously, they let more people in as time went on, but that was still their bread and butter. And if I were a journalist, I would have been completely alienated at the time. Mm. It doesn't matter if, even if my name wasn't on the list, I would think, what the hell are you doing <laughs> with, yeah. with your security? <laughs> I would be absolutely livid about that. So it's unsurprising that that was a huge blow. Yeah, people were very upset and um, to be fair, the ESA, they did take appropriate measures. They took the lists mm. down as quickly as they could. And um, they also implemented new security measures for the future, as well as um, making very clear that they are limiting the amount of personal data that they're even going to uh, store at all. Um, because you don't need necessarily all of the information that was on these lists in order to track who's attending and who's not. Right. Now, after this... Um, now we come to the next section. I've given it the title, The Pandemic Ends the Show. Yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> Another fatality of COVID. Yeah, it's really, yeah. it's a series like of uh, pretty heavy blows yes. uh, that E3 took in that time frame. In summer 2020, E3 wanted to return to form. Uh, the concept was this time that influencers should have uh, priority in accessing uh, E3, because they were kind of hoping to make it this viral event uh, that would go wild all over social media. However, 
fairly early on, Sony announced that they would not be participating. They had abstained before, and they just made it very clear, no, we're, we're basically not coming back. We've got our own thing going now. We're very happy with that. Also, 2020 was the year when Geoff Keighley left E3. He, was, he hosted some major E3 events, and he dropped out in 2020. He spoke uh, with gamesindustry.biz at the time. I found an old interview with him uh, mm. where he said the following, quote, Given what has been publicly communicated about plans for E3 2020, I just don't feel comfortable participating in the show at this time, end quote. He didn't go into much detail, but from his elaborations, also other elaborations in the interview, it's clear that Geoff Keighley was not happy with the way that E3 was progressing and that he felt like it needed to change. He also had already established the Game Awards, and the Game Awards were growing, so he had his own thing. And he had also increased his presence at Gamescom in Germany, uh, basically uh, kind of going out on his own path to establish alternative events to E3. I think there's, there's a conspiracy theory to be had that there's, you know, there's something going on behind the scenes. You could read into that quote from the interview that you read however you'd like. But I think realistically with Jeff Keighley, he just saw the turning of the tide and yeah, he had his own things going on. And I think he, I would argue that Jeff Keighley has his pulse or his finger on the pulse of the gaming industry more so than a lot of people at E3 did. And I think he basically said, yeah, this is done. I, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, find any value in this moving forward. I'm going to create my own value. And that's yeah. what he's been doing. And I mean, we don't know whether there was something that happened behind the curtains that led him to basically uh, quit E3, but um, it might not have even been necessary because no. um, he had, uh, there was a he's reason a for why, yeah, he's a smart guy. As you said, he understands video game culture and he probably project, uh, uh, he probably anticipated the trajectory of where video game culture and the industry would develop. That's why he initiated the game awards because he found, well, actually we don't have something like the Oscars and we mm. can make this a really big thing. He brought some E3 spirit with it to the game awards, but as in making it about celebrating the industry and giving out awards on the one hand, but on the other hand, also giving lots of new announcements and stuff. So kind of satisfying this desire for we want news, we want announcements, we want trailers. But still, E3 was supposed to go ahead, but then the pandemic hit. And the ESA was trying to cling on as many companies were at the time. This is not a, an evaluative statement. When in 2020, many companies still believed they could progress as normal uh, at, as long as possible. And uh, it was then supposed to take place as a virtual event uh, when they saw, okay, so with this huge crowds, it's probably not going to be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then the virtual event was also cancelled because under the assumption, that's at least what I could gather, um, that there was just uh, there was not enough time to prepare. They didn't quite know how to pull it off. There was no proper precedent for this. And so um, they cancelled it entirely. And since then, they struggled to find their footing again. Yeah, it's a, a big stack of dominoes that kept getting bigger and bigger <laughs> with every, every little push. I remember when that happened in 2020 because... Obviously, we none of us were doing much more than 
reading online and uh, playing video games. And when I think it was, it was a foregone conclusion to me that the in-person show would be canceled, of course, because everything was. But then when that second announcement of the virtual show being canceled came out, I remember thinking, okay, this is, Mm. this is maybe a sign of the end. Yeah. This is not just, um, the pandemic, uh, because, They've got infrastructure, they've got technology. They doubtlessly would have, if you look at the huge shows they put on before, it can't be that hard to set up a stage and a camera and put a couple of trailer inserts in there, um, as Geoff Keighley then did uh, with the Summer Game Fest. But um, I think that this is really a conflict that had pervaded E3 all this time already. What is it going to be? What is it going to look like? Is it going to be primarily for industry insiders or for the public? Is it going to be a celebration of 500 different video games or focus on just a couple all of these things uh, were never really negotiated and um, that leads us to the dying breath Mm. of e3 which took place in this year in 2023 um, where e3 had taken a break for uh, since 2020 actually Um, i think in the last year there wasn't was there any three I don't even remember. So don't they, remember regardless either. of whether there is, that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember either. There, there was. There, uh, wait. Was, was there? there? No. <laughs> I ah. don't think there was. No, it was canceled in 2022. It, it was, was canceled. Okay. Yeah. You know what I'm, you know what I'm thinking back to? I'm thinking back to like, did Dunkey or Lyle Rath make a video about it on YouTube? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, they cobbled together some announcements, but there wasn't any free video. <laughs> it's also, it becomes hard in, in hindsight to distinguish because um, as soon as the pandemic hit, the Summer Game Fest was established, yeah. which basically took the E3 concept, put it into exactly that virtual showcase that we would have expected from E3 with the host, Geoff Keighley, and he just basically ran with it and uh, made it big. Now, um, before we go into that, though, let me briefly elaborate on the cancellation of E3, because mm. this might be the very last chapter in this story. Uh, after years of not taking place because of the pandemic, uh, they basically wanted to make a, a comeback in some form. Nobody really know what it would, would be, but in the months leading up to it, we already uh, saw how major publishers were drawing out. Major publishers was like Nintendo... No, clearly they wouldn't attend. But even then, Sony, no, thank you. We've, you know, doing our, we're kind of doing well as we are. <laughs> Major success with their own show. May, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. And imagine the, the money they're saving on overhead with travel and, yeah, mm. why would they need E3? They don't. And how it's, it's tough if you've got several of these showcases, including an already established Summer Game Fest, um, where everyone's attention is going to be then what are you going to show still at E3? You know, then you have to split things up, then your showcase is not going to be as impressive, stuff like that. In any case, on the 30th of March, 2023, E3 was cancelled for this year, and there's a public statement from Kaylee Marston Kish at ReadPop, who's, you know, the organizing institution or uh, organizing company of E3. Uh, And she says, quote, This was a difficult decision, because of all the effort we and our partners put toward making this event happen. But we had to do what's right for the industry and what's right for E3. We appreciate and understand that interested companies wouldn't have playable demos ready and that resourcing challenges 
made being E3 made being at E3 this summer an obstacle they couldn't overcome. End quote. This was from an interview with Kaylee Marston Kish from Readpop at IGN.com. You know, that's that's a factor. We're kind of being harsh on E3. I am anyway, <laughs> being harsh <laughs> on, on the production. But I think that's a really forgetting all of the the sort of public perception of E3 and people pulling out of it. That is a very cogent point, which is the pandemic was really hard on the development of video games to the point where I think we're still feeling the effects of the lag and of the, uh, you know, cancellations or, or things moving, things moving forward without their normal schedule. We're still kind of feeling it. So the sense that, listen, these companies may not even have the games, you know, I, we don't want to, we don't want to have an empty showcase. It's reasonable. Yeah, we don't want to have an empty and sad showcase and companies have to prioritize. And mm. uh, if they know that, well, I mean, that Geoff Keighley basically owns the media industry now, uh, the, the uh, <laughs> game in this, games industry now, uh, they, they know they want to show something at the Game Awards, of course. That's where you want to be. Uh, and Geoff Keighley is certainly going to approach you and be like, hey, what do you, what do you intend to do for the Game Awards? Um, Real nice gonna... video game company you've got here. It'd be a shame if something <laughs> happened to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you going to do for the Summer Game Fest? Yeah, <laughs> got any what of you your got? major titles going on? A new, a new Crash Bandicoot, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually really fun and really cool. I think he yes. would probably he would forgive <laughs> us for <laughs> poking fun at him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're both we're both big fans of Jeff. If you've listened yes. to our our episodes on the game the game awards and the summer game fest, I think that he is a proper bearer of the torch for where we are with these exactly. kinds of things. Yeah, the reason for why things work so well for Geoff Keighley, I think, is that he has an authentic passion for video games. Um, E3 always has been this kind of more like it's a major thing by this. Um, industry um trade show institution that doesn't really have much of a face or voice it of yeah. course it does but people don't perceive it as such and uh, they are rather attracted to um some someone like a charismatic host like Geoff Keighley who conveys the genuine passion for video games and since he has got the events going and these these events are fun there I I, uh, I love to watch the uh, game awards and i'm probably going to enjoy the summer game fest this year uh, really enjoyable events and it's going to be difficult for e3 to make any kind of return the question is will that even happen at all or was this basically the end on their website if you visit it um they just have one simple statement that e3 has been cancelled it's not taking place this year and um, if you want to keep in the loop, then you can sign up for a newsletter. I think my thought would be that even if it comes back, it would not look the way that we are used to E3 looking. I think it would probably look more like, ironically, CES. I think if E3 were to come back, I think it would be strictly a trade show for years when companies have hardware that they want to sell. Because, as you mentioned, Jeff Keighley, he's the face of this kind of area of the of the video game world right now. And for really good reason, because <clears throat> out, 
outside of like Reggie Fizame showing up at E3, which was always a treat, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of personality or uh, connectivity between people who play the games and the gaming companies. But now you have Jeff Keighley with the Game Awards. You have the higher ups at Nintendo in their Nintendo Directs. You have the developers from like Santa Monica Studios and other huge development teams in the states of play or like Yoshi P showing up for Square Enix. It's a much more personal uh, situation with actual like faces of people who are making the games. And I don't think you can go back to look at this trailer we have. Isn't this exciting? Yeah, you're probably right. It it could be that it could be this trade show. Mm. That could be a, a possibility of saying we're going to go back to the days of 2007 and 8 and we're going to do an E3 media and business summit. Um, that probably, that would still not solve the problem. Oh, let me put it this way. It would solve the problem of having to compete with Geoff Keighley because he clearly, he's won this race, um, yes. you know, and deservedly so. He's done very well for himself. Um but they couldn't possibly compete. And if they were to do such a trade show, it could be primarily for industry connections. They couldn't possibly focus it so much on announcements because all of the companies have their own venues already. They communicate with players via their own showcases or through Geoff Keighley, basically. Yeah, and yeah. Those are the two options. And it's hard to squish another player in there. And that's why, I mean, another option is also, but this might be a stretch i mean they could also try and establish themselves as a kind of um a venue for indie something between indie and like double a productions of being like an annual kind of like you know e3 indie mm. or something like that um showcase where they do a smaller one because indie games often there are lots of indie games in this world that are still looking for a, a stage where they can present their stuff and that might be a possibility. You know, I, I love that idea, but as you were describing it, uh, that's what PAX is. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. It also exists. Yep, a PAX in its many forms, whether it's East, West, Australia, um, PAX Unplugged in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, they kind of have the market cover. That's where they got their start, really, is showcasing mm. indie developers. And that's still a huge thing where, you know, the the big AAA developers, maybe there's one or two at PAX, but for the most part, the exciting thing about PAX is going to talk with the indie developers. So I would love to see that maybe a localized version of it in Los Angeles. Uh, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of avenues they could take, but none of them seem to be as, as big or as exciting as what E3 once was. So in other words, we can safely assume that E3, as we know it, is dead. I think so. I think we can we can chisel in the epitaph on the gravestone and uh, much like in Back to the Future 3, we can say <laughs> shot in the back by Jeff Keighley over a matter of $80. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so very much for listening to this episode on the story of E3. Feel free to submit your thoughts and questions by going to studyingpixels.com slash contact. And if you want to help us out, then one option to do so is you could go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That's really nice because it might help us get discovered by a couple more people. Thank you so very much for listening and see you next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.